This is the audio of Bible study taught by Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find our website at goodshepherdlincoln.org, and there's a uh, treasure trove of other information available there as well. Uh, let's get into Bible study now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Don't forget to grab a foot-shaped cookie. At least they start that way before you take a few bites. Um, (laughs) It is uh, Life Sunday, and so we've got those there. Thanks to those who made them. They're fantastic. That's why mine's half gone now. Um, But grab one of those and um, enjoy. I'm kind of torn about what to do today, topic-wise. Because if we keep going, then we might have to come back and then redo when we get a few more people that are here. But I'm not opposed to it. Um, I suppose, too, if anybody had a question about anything, we could play stump the pastor um, and see if we can come up with an answer for something you've always wanted to ask but never had the opportunity. Uh, We could do that as well. Um, Any feedback on that? Okay. Guys are eager to answer. Okay, Sarah has a question. Okay. Okay, so we Right. The, the question is, who is it that sinned first, Adam or Eve? Because there is some discussion about that in our world today. Um, and um, there are those who say Eve sinned first because she ate from the tree opposed to God's word. And there are some who say Adam sinned first because he was the head and he was there and he didn't stop her. Now, the the scriptures teach, St. Paul helps to clarify this. I'm trying to think of the passage, chapter and verse off the top of my head. Maybe Tim will remember while I'm uh, saying it. Um, Paul writes that Eve sinned first. Okay, and um, I want to say it's like in Timothy something. Um, being optimistic. <laughs> being optimistic. Um, you know what? I have right here a way we can look at the chapter and verse, right? Um, oops. Okay. 
Um, Eve sinned first, according to St. Paul. But it is in... Um, let's see, maybe look this word up. Eve sinned first, but it is in Adam that we inherit sin. And so what should have happened when Eve sinned first, Adam, as a good husband, should have gone before her and... Um, maybe it's a woman. I think it's Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2? Yeah. See, look, somebody else has... I will tell you the truth chapter and verse because I was not raised in a a church that believed in the Bible. (laughs) I don't know very well. 1 Timothy 2. There. Here we go. Thank you, Ben. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Yet Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Eve's the one who sinned. Adam sinned then afterwards. And it's through Adam that we then inherit our sin because he's the head of all humanity. And so Paul also writes, um, in Adam all have sinned and, and things like that. But it is Eve who does so first. Now the, the thing to say... What Adam should have done when Eve sinned is rather than jumping in and sinning with her, when God came and said, what is this you have done? He should have said what? The woman was deceived. She ate. She deserves to die for her sin. But I'm her husband. You should take it out on me for her sake. Now, we don't even get to that point because Adam just jumps right into sin right along with her. But who does that for us then? Who is the good husband uh, in this issue? Jesus, who does come down, take on our flesh, take on our sin, bleed and die that we might be forgiven. I don't know if that kind of answer... There's kind of a new thing going around in the church right now where people are saying the first sin is Adam letting Eve sin. And that's just, that's not not what the scripture teaches. Okay. Good question. Yeah. Yeah, how, how do Lutherans look at women, right? Well, first off, we only look at our own wives. No, I'm just, just joking. Okay, no. Um, we are not in agreement with all the things that get pushed in the world today. We believe what Scripture says, that man is the head of the family, and that... Um, In marriage, the two are united in one flesh, 
but the man is the head and the woman then follows the lead of the man. What that has, has historically become, um, and this is what feminism is right in fighting against, was historically it became the man would come home and sit on the couch and say, I want a steak, I want a beer, and I want you to rub my feet, and the woman's job was to go and do all of that uh, and all those sorts of things. That's not what we believe. That's what, in some places, had been the case, right? And this is what began feminism, is the fight against that. What's the man's job? This is our scripture lessons from the epistle lesson today. What's the man's job? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay? A husband's job is to sacrifice for his wife, to take care of her, to provide for her and his offspring that he has through her as well. Now, if I come home to Elizabeth, and she's not here, so I can ask these questions, right? <laughs> if I come home and I sit on the couch and say, listen, woman, I want a T-bone steak, rub my feet, um, you know, whatever else, vacuum the floor, all these things, am I sacrificing to take care of her? Is that what I would like to do? <laughs> Men, so, okay, slide away from your wives. Is that what you would like to do? <laughs> yeah, right? But that's not taking care of your wife, so what should you do as a Christian husband? Help take care of all of these things. The wife still follows the husband's lead, but the husband is doing the things necessary to help take care of his wife. And it doesn't mean that a woman can't have a job. It doesn't mean that all these other things, you know, that, that feminism has been pushing, they're pushing too far. It's like they fell off one side of the horse and now they're pushing back and falling on the other side. I don't know if I'm making sense or answering your question. Mary's, uh, the conception of Jesus could be seen as an improper pregnancy. Um, and in fact, that's the fear that is had in that time, right? So Mary goes to stay with Elizabeth. Why? Because it's hard to hide a baby growing in your belly. And she goes to be with Elizabeth because she's family and does Elizabeth know what's going on? How does Elizabeth know what's going on? God revealed it to her, right? Okay. So um, Mary, Mary knows that Elizabeth's pregnant because Gabriel tells her. She goes to hang out there to try and keep the scandal under wraps as well. And we know what does Joseph want to do? Divorce her quietly. Okay? Because he doesn't want her to be put to death 
which is the official sentence that should be there. Now, whether they did that in the Roman period or not, we don't know. Okay, but that would be, it would at least, at the very, very least, be not good for Mary and her reputation. So he's going to put her, divorce her quietly as if the child is his, but he doesn't want to fall into this. If your spouse is pregnant and you know you haven't slept with them, what does that tell you? 99.99999% of the time. Except for when an angel talks to them. (laughs) So Joseph is worried about the scandal as well. He's going to divorce her quietly. So there is a scandal that's there. But we know that it is the working of God to bring about the Savior. So I don't know if I've answered your question or, or not. It, it is an amazing, beautiful thing, isn't it, that God takes on our flesh and, and that Mary... Um, so this goes back to your first question as well. Mary is kind of a um, shadow of what the church is then, or maybe the church is a, a shadow of who she is. She becomes, in a sense, like the perfect wife right? Because her husband is God, who sacrifices everything to purify and cleanse her. She stands in for what the church is. We see this in the Revelation of St. John, where the woman gives birth, uh, and the dragon's trying to eat the child, but the woman goes out into the wilderness. We see it in Ephesians 5, our epistle lesson for today, where it says um, that Paul talks about husbands sacrificing for their wives and wives submitting to their husbands. But Paul says this is actually all about what? Christ and the church, right? So even our marriages, our relationships with our spouse are there to teach us about Christ and the church. And all of us, whether you're a man or a woman, are the bride of Christ And he is our husband in that picture as well. So Mary is the church. Mary is wife. Mary is the mother of God. She's all these things in that way. And so it is a very beautiful picture in that way. God's message to us is that women are what? God's message to us is that women are what? There are, I don't know. That's a big question. They are, they are valuable. I'm leaving you. That's okay. They are valuable. They are um, important. In fact, um, okay, and you're going to put me down another path here that's going to be kind of fun. Who should go and fight in a war? Men. <laughs> right? Why? Okay, they're sure they're stronger. I didn't protect. protect because the important, valuable thing is the woman who gives birth to the offspring and is there helping take care of the family. So the man should go do the horrible, terrible job of fighting in the war to protect the thing that's most important. I say that because what are we doing more and more in our country? 
in our nation, right? <laughs> We're sending more and more women, even into combat now. That's, that's not Christian, I'll say it that way. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. So uh, Renee says, I'm saying how I said that. <laughs> Renee says that women are too emotional to do things like that. And I, I, I agree to a certain extent. Why is it that women are emotional? <laughs> They're supposed to love the little tiny baby that wakes them up at 2 o'clock in the morning, whereas... What would the man do, right? I put in some earplugs. <laughs> I guess, no, just to you. Okay? It's God built a woman with those emotions so that when that slime-covered, blood-covered baby pops out, the woman looks at it, and instantly, what does she do? She loves it, and she holds it, and she cherishes it and takes care of it. Right? I know he's not popular anymore. Bill Cosby had the, the comedy sketch when his son is born and it comes out and he looks and he sees what he and his wife have made and then he hands it to his wife and said, here dear, congratulations, you've had a lizard, <laughs> right? Okay, but the mom immediately bonds with the baby because of those emotions that God built into her. So men should be out fighting the war because we value our families, uh, our wives and our families. Same, I'm just going to say this, and we've got a couple pastors who can tell me if they disagree. I think this is part of why men should be pastors also. Can women get up and speak publicly? Can they sing the liturgy? Can they say all the words that the pastor says? Sure. But the pastor has some jobs that he's supposed to do that are really not very much fun. <laughs> Is that fair to say, Pastor Poppy? So, so God gives that horrible task, it's not always horrible, but sometimes it is, to the man because he values the bride of Christ, the church, and, and, and doesn't want to put this valuable woman through all the ringer that oftentimes a pastor has to go through. And so all of these things are related uh, across the board. This is to, do you notice when we were in Genesis, um, God makes the woman from what? The woman's side. Not from, from the, the man's side. I've got it backwards. Makes the woman from the man's side. Not from the man's foot. As if the woman is always underneath the man's foot. Not from the man's head, as if she rules over the husband, but instead from the side. And in marriage, when he reunites man and woman, where do they stand? Right? When you got married, you were up in front of church, where do you stand? Side by side. And that's then the one fleshness, is you are side by side throughout the rest of your life is the way that God pictures it in that way. doesn't mean the man's not the head. He is, but he sacrifices for his bride in all the things that he is head in. So what is a woman? 
from the church's perspective, very important, very valuable, a picture of the church, a picture of ourselves as Christians in the church, uh, the thing that we value so that we go out and protect and guard and defend and love and cherish, uh, all the things that Paul says. Maybe we should look there at Ephesians chapter 5 and just read through it here real quick. It was our epistle lesson for today. Okay. Starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So, wives, submit to their husbands. He's the head. Okay? And she's the body in that regard. Now, my head (laughs) works hard to take care of my body. Right? Um, and when, when my head fails, it knows it. Like when I kick the corner in the middle of the night, you ever do that? You get up in the, to go to the bathroom, and you're walking in the dark, and you kick the corner of your bed frame, okay? And your little toe feels like it's broken off. How does your head respond when the body is hurt? <laughs> okay? That's, that's the thing with the man. He's the head, the body. He's taking care of it. And in the same way, then, Christ is the head of the church. So all of us men, even if we're ahead of our own family, who is our head? And so who do we submit to? To Christ, in the same way. It's not that we're immune from that submission. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, okay? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Okay. Husbands, what's your job in regards to your wife? Yeah, I mean, what does Jesus do? What thing does Jesus keep back for himself on Good Friday. What about Jesus' clothes? What happened to those? They're stripped from him. The soldiers gamble for them. Why? So he can save his bride, the church. What about his body? What happens to his body on the cross? Before he gets to the cross, what happens to his body? He's beaten, okay, spat upon, his beard is pulled out. They smash thorns into his skull. He is exhausted. He has prayed for his bride, the church, to the point with so much worry that he sweats blood the night before. He gives up his body and all its functions to take care of his bride, the church. What about all of his blood? How much of it does he keep for himself? 
None, right? He sheds the whole thing, the whole enchilada. Even his life then itself, he gives up for the sake of the church. Husbands, that's your job. (laughs) Okay? Kill yourself for your wife. Not literally. Please don't go home and do it that way, okay? But yes, literally, but not at your own hand. Well, yeah. If if there's not enough money to buy food, what should happen in a marriage? The man should find more employment, right? Even if it means he's working two or three jobs, seven days a week, however many hours a week, his job is to give all that he has, take care of his wife. And that's manly. (laughs) That's, That's what Jesus does for his bride. That's what we do as well. How many of us are good at that? Ben is. No, I'm just teasing. I asked the question after you raised your hand. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hijack this. No, you're okay. Yeah, that's a great question. The, the question is, um, I'm going to summarize it, so make sure I summarize it correctly, Ben. Uh, why don't we as Lutherans hold marriage as a sacrament when Paul in Ephesians 5 says this mystery is profound, when it has all of these beautiful pictures of Christ and the church that are in there, why is it that we don't hold it as a sacrament? And um, there's really... There's a couple of reasons, okay? So we go back and use St. Augustine's, is it St. Augustine? St. Augustine's definition for sacrament, right? Um, That a physical object plus God's word that delivers forgiveness of sins. And in this particular instance, (laughs) does marriage bring forgiveness of sins? We would say, No, it teaches us about our baptism, as Paul also does here, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, about our relationship with Christ and brings us back to our baptism in that regard, where we are receiving forgiveness of sins. But marriage in itself does not. And we would also say, what's the physical object that's there? In baptism, we have water. In um, the Lord's Supper, we have bread and wine. I suppose you could say in marriage you have husband and wife, but even that we'd say 
We're not 100% sure does that count as a physical object or not. Right? Does that kind of help answer? Somebody help me. Is it Augustine that does that? You got it, Matt? Okay. Do you want to read it, or you got it pulled up, or? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Better than me. Yeah, that's what the much smarter people than me wrote it. Yeah, Tim, you had your hand up. Right. Really, and if we read the whole Ephesians 5, it teaches us about baptism, cleansing, sanctifying, and really it brings us back to the Lord's Supper as well, right, where Christ is giving his own body and blood for his bride to eat uh, so that she may be nourished and sustained in the world. And so even those things, we can bring that back to the, the central. What do you think? you agree or disagree? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, both. Good, good questions. Yeah. Your name? I was just going to take us back to kind of a Genesis conversation. Okay. Um, between Cain and Abel, uh, I was always wondering if Cain's vengeful personality and bitterness came because not only was he a firstborn, so usually there's a lot more put on him, but also, he had to toil the fields, so that was a harder job. And then all of a sudden, his little brother does, you know, what was deemed, you know, minimal amount of work, and then gets, you know, the grace of God handed up on yeah. <laughs> you know, his offering, and got accepted, and he's in there going, I've worked, like, behind up, you know. <laughs> the, the question is, Cain and Abel, um, the conflict, the vengefulness that's between the two of them, if it comes because, um, a little bit because oldest children are spoiled a little bit, he had a harder job working the ground than Abel did uh, being a shepherd. Um, all of these things could possibly pay, play a role in it. They're not, the scripture doesn't tell us those details beyond, I mean, was it harder or not? It doesn't tell us um, what it does tell us several times throughout the entirety, Old and New Testament, is that Cain's faith was not the same as Abel's faith. And so that's even in uh, Hebrews uh, and in a couple other places. I think Paul mentions it. His faith is different than that of his brothers. And because his faith is different, all of that, and even God's warning to him kind of draws us back to that as well. So, could it be, you must not be a firstborn, Renee, are you? You are? Okay, me too. The best and the brightest, right? No, just well, you get a harder job, see? <laughs> get a harder job. Yeah. I think it is a little harder being the firstborn. 
my youngest brother got away with a whole lot more than I did. So, because um, he, I don't know if it's because he was youngest, but he just made my dad laugh. Like, yeah. Ask my dad about it. He'll tell you stories for a week about it. Won't he, Claire? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good questions. Other questions? Have we, have we answered the ones that were kind of asked? Okay. Well, let's um, look at the, the timeline again, back to Genesis, see if we can't finish up chapter 5 real quick. I think we can. Okay. So we had ended with Enoch last week. Uh, he's this blue color here. Okay, we've got Enoch in the Hebrew timeline and Enoch in the Greek timeline. And, and you kind of know I lean towards the Greek Septuagint timeline there in the bottom of the page. Okay, Enoch is taken after he had lived 65, or 365 years and he went to be with God. And he's the seventh generation. And we talked about how that teaches us in the end, on the last day, what is it that we have to look forward to? Christ is going to take us to be with him. And those who are left behind will not get to be with him forever in his kingdom. Okay, so left behind stuff, there's no second chance. Okay, so don't, don't believe the left behind books my father-in-law has gym shorts that say left behind. <laughs> okay, and that's about the stock you should put in those books. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's keep reading past Enoch then. After Enoch, we have Methuselah. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then he died. And we talked about that's the refrain of this chapter. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And Methuselah, according to Scripture, he's the longest-lived person that we know about. 969 years, and even he died. I want to talk about the name of Methuselah as well, okay? Um, this white line right here is the flood according to the Septuagint. And this white line here is the flood according to the Hebrew. And you notice in both of those, the Hebrew and the Septuagint, when Methuselah dies, what comes about? The flood. And there's even some speculation that the name Methuselah means... When I die, a deluge. Okay? Now, there's a debate about it because we don't know 100%, but that's one way we can read it in the Hebrew. Methuselah. When I die, the deluge or the flood. Okay? And so Methuselah lives to be 969. He dies, and then the flood comes. Um, Lamech lived 182 years and he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, 
had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and then he died. Okay? Now, Noah, the name Noah, sounds like rest. Okay? So Noah means rest. And we have this interesting thing that hasn't been in the rest of the genealogy. When Noah is born... God gives him, or his dad gives him the name that means rest, and we have the explanation recorded for us in the genealogy, breaking kind of the format that we've had up to that point. That's because, as you all know, is Methuselah going to be important? Or sorry, Noah going to be important? Yes. So we have his name defined and brought about here a little bit more clearly because Noah is going to be important. Now, the name Noah means rest because out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. How in the world does Noah do that? Is Noah the Savior? Is that what the name means? No. He's not the Savior. Who's the Savior? Jesus. Jesus. Does Noah give us a type or a picture of who Jesus is going to be? You guys know this from Sunday school, right? Yes. We, say, we pray this in the, every time we have a baptism, right? Um, that all sin, just as Noah and his family are brought through the flood safely, so too we're being brought through the waters of baptism safely and all sin and death would drown and die in the waters of baptism and it might be a saving flood for us. Noah is a picture of Christ and Christ is descended from him and so he has this name but he is not himself the Messiah or the Savior. That makes sense. Any questions? Okay. So then we end chapter 5. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's written this way in this part to bring chapter 5 to a close. But. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were not all born at the same year or the same day. They actually are born several years apart, each one of them. And we know that from later on in the Bible where it tells us these things. But this is just kind of a um, summary to bring chapter 5 and its genealogy to a close so that we can then talk and focus about Noah. Now I want to point out one more thing here. Noah is what generation? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Enoch was the seventh generation. He teaches us about the resurrection. Noah is the tenth generation. Does God also like the number ten? Yes. Okay, it's a number of completeness. Uh, God's liking of the number 10 is why you have 10 fingers and 10 toes and why you count using the decimal system instead of the binary or something like that. God likes the number 10. And Noah then is the completion of the antediluvian time, the pre-flood time. Okay? The 10th generation.
And so that's what we're going we're gonna to pick up with next week, talking about Noah. All right, any questions to bring us to a close? All right, I'll say it one more time, antediluvian. I said it right that time, antediluvian. Okay, pre-flood. <laughs> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.